0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Dr. Anna Lemke. Uh, 20% of you will now immediately fast forward and I don't blame you. This lasts about five minutes and you won't have time to listen to the fact that we've been nominated for an award. The Lovies, best host, presumably me. And our other podcast, Above the Noise, the guided meditation podcast, has been... Uh, nominated for best, I don't know, well-being. So I'm very happy about that. Please, you, do people vote for it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's on. There's a p- bit on the page. <laughs> vote <laughs> for <laughs> Lo- it. Loveisawards.com.
0: All right, vote for it. Uh, com. <laughs> vote- don't vote for someone else. Vote for me. She, the, I don't agree with voting, as you know. The, yeah,
1: don't
0: vote. Uh, uh, well, but for, for me, yeah. you do. <laughs> Dopamine Nation, finding, she wrote um, Dr. Anna Lemke, who's amazing. That's You're very sense. unprofessional. You should be fired for that. Dr. Anna Lemke, <laughs> a brilliant doctor, a friend of addicts everywhere, an advocate of recovery, a woman who said that I was a prophet, didn't she, Jen?
1: Did she say prophet?
0: Yeah. Well, to clarify, she said all people in recovery are prophets. I'm in recovery. Ergo ipso facto, anno domini, ich bin Ina Prophet. profit. <laughs> no, she wrote right, so she's brilliant. This is a really brilliant conversation. She cut it short, didn't she, Jen? It was brutal. Yeah, she said she sorry I have to go. All of a sudden out of nowhere. She,
1: she was... could have preempted it with oh there've been ten minutes left, maybe. Yeah,
0: it was like it was I have to go now. Yeah. It was a very sudden departure, but hopefully we'll speak to her again. She was absolutely fantastic. Okay, so um oh, have we had any banter, Jen? Oh no. <laughs> Decanter. Oh, you haven't heard that in a while. Feels good, feels good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the sweet music of a, a true artist there. Now, what we um, need is a bit of banter, Jen. Yep. What have you been doing? Dating anyone? Have you got uh, any?
1: I tried to talk to someone on a dating app. Ugh. Um, Who was it? Man, is it the man?
0: What was he like? Chisley chin? Yeah, he looks like
1: someone more alicia's type,
0: actually. What's alicia's type?
1: You look kind of posh.
0: She likes posh people.
1: Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Just assume she would. My yeah. mum's coming today.
0: Ah, ah. Yeah. To, to hopefully bring you back to the village probably. No,
1: to come to the seaside.
0: Ah, you know, to the seaside. Yeah. Do you reckon you'll get in?
1: To the seaside.
0: No, the, 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 the water. Oh. Not like... <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't blame the seaside if they barred you from it, Jen. If they said,
1: That's what I thought you meant. I wouldn't blame them one bit
0: if they said you're not allowed no, into it's a the bit whole... No,
1: co- it's gotten very cut. Co- now. we can't talk about the weather on why? the podcast. It's just a bit too small Boring. talky. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, unless you're talking about it from a Wim Hof perspective. Ha- has
1: anyone tried to chat you up recently? I don't think so. You sure?
0: Why, why do you... Who like? What? Do like you mean, a Luke? woman.
1: Do, it's like a little woman. A little woman? No, did a woman.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so, Jen. No, one ever tries to chat me up.
1: Really? Never. Oh.
0: Ever. It's never, I do ever happened.
1: In your whole life?
0: I mean, people have wanted to have sex with me. That's been quite clear.
1: Is that not kind of the same thing?
0: I'd like to, someone uh. to try and chat me up. <laughs> I think I'd be really... I mean, when that Luke Kemp coming up on the podcast next week... Um, a, a sort of ex- existential researcher at Cambridge wrote a brilliant article on emergency powers and how they're ev- never really rescinded. When me and him had a bit of a flirt, yeah. I liked it.
1: Yeah, you must have had people do that.
0: That's not enough. Maybe you oh.
1: got in there too soon. Yeah. You never let people to the Yeah, you
0: that is it, Jen. That's the truth of it. I was a very um, forward thinking and progressive flirt. <laughs> <laughs> so like there wasn't much room for like other people to start the ball rolling as it mm. were the ball was rolling oh jen oh luke kemp well luke kemp people are going to enjoy the sexual chemistry between he yeah. and i i would say
1: yeah he complimented your beard
0: did didn't he all right so let's listen to a, a listen so oh you tried to chat someone up on an app it didn't go oh, well, well no
1: i i just don't reply to, i think i'm a ghoster
0: Oh, you're a ghost, You're yeah, a ghost. I think
1: I ghost people, and that's the worst kind of person, isn't it?
0: People don't like ghosting. I've done a video on it, Jen.
1: I know. It was my idea. <laughs>
0: yeah, but where were you when yeah. we were recording it? You ghosted me. <laughs> this is the listener shout-out. Listener shout out. <laughs> Listen <to> shout outs. <laughs> Lauren Whitelaw. Hello, Russell and Jenny. Thank you for under... And Jenny, she's thanking you, Uh, for Under the Skin. Oh, and Above the Noise. I've listened to almost every episode in the past year or so, and I'm now obsessed with Wim Hof and cold therapy. He came to one of my gigs the other day, and uh, he's just texted me. I watched Arthur.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, I know those people who love Arthur. It was 10 years ago. Yeah, but movies are timeless, right? Oh, right, cool.
0: Um, (laughs) And then she says, Lots of gratitude for finding intellectual stimulation in your heart and work. Mostly I want to transmit deep gratitude to you and Jenny. Give him hell. Jenny is hell. <laughs> Russell Braxton, a combination of me and Tony Braxton. Yes,
1: so
0: Were you thinking about Tony Braxton? Just there, yeah. <laughs> it's got an uncommon name. It's got an X in it. I'd love an X in my name. Would you like an X? Is that why you did Brand X? Yeah, just to get an X in my name. And that was pretty much what it achieved. Over the time listening to your content, I have to say you're doing fantastic. I'm more liberal conservative and I think it crosses paths with you more than is known. The way you handle conversations with people you could disagree with like Candice too is refreshing. I think the problem with people now is that these conversations aren't allowed to happen and free speech debate are looked down upon from the media and the left. I agree with Ben Shapiro and others saying the left isn't the same as liberals, even though they have been linked. I really appreciate you being able to ask questions and give your opinions and hold composure. Thanks, old other Russ. Of course, where I'm coming from is that I'm so far left. Even them radical leftists, they wouldn't, you know. Ooh, blimey, What's they'd be it, shocked. How radical are
1: radical leftists?
0: Well, not that radical, in my opinion. But like, because uh, I'm so radical. But like, I think what we should do is let everyone run their own lives. Let's leave everyone alone. Yeah. Dismantle the state. You can't dismantle the state. Well, I wanna. God, this dog's kicking She's up and rubbing her nose
1: off the carpet. Why is she
0: doing that, Jenny? Anyway, look, I don't know the answers, I just want to participate in the solution, baby.
1: All
0: right, so um, we've been nominated for an award yeah. Under the Skin with Russell Brand, Best Host in Podcasts. Yeah. Difficult to argue. Above the Noise with Russell Brand, Health and Wellness in Podcasts. Now, if you want to vote for that, for some, like, we well, be good, I'd appreciate it probably. Go to loveyawards.com and vote for us. I mean,
1: Jenny, the thing is,
0: is like that. We could use our considerable social media platform to push for votes, couldn't we?
1: Yeah, but that doesn't make you feel weird.
0: It makes me feel cheap. Yeah. Does it make you feel cheap? I
1: don't think they should. You should be able to do that, right? No. What's the point in then that? Then it's just whoever's fan base are most good at doing votes, or
0: who's most shameless in promoting stuff like that. And I've sort of sometimes I think, oh, let's really gear myself up to so go. Come on. Shouldn't it be like a board? Yeah. I'd rather have oh, hold on a minute. What about democracy?
1: Yeah, but maybe they like the Mercury Awards.
0: What is the Mercury Awards?
1: It's that song, kind of songwriting band awards. Pretty. I
0: know, I know what it is, but I mean, what are you using it as an example there of they are a here? board
1: of people that vote.
0: well like the Oscars?
1: Yeah, <sighs> but not, not as bad as the Oscars, I not think.
0: Look, Jen, this is what I'm saying. If I can put it as simply as I may, yeah. I want those awards, <laughs> but I do not want yeah. to try and get them. I want those awards and any other awards that are going to be given to me, accolades galore. But actually, look—the real truth, the real freedom—is letting go absolutely of wanting everything, isn't it? Yeah. Because really, if you think about it, I've won awards before. I looked on my Wikipedia page; I've won loads.
1: Yeah, you have won quite a lot.
0: Yeah, a lot. What have you won? Best comedian, British Comedy Awards, Best Special Outstanding Achievement, Best Comedian, Time Out, Special Broadcasting Thing, Shagger of the Year three times. You know, I've like had a lot of accolades. Yeah. Actually, I, I thought
1: of something relevant to the podcast. What? That's an, uh, about me. What? You know, the way she said the little gremlins are on a seesaw and they're always trying to rectify. Do you think that you're that? No, <laughs> I'm not a gremlin. You're the little gremlin <laughs> trying to rectify my happiness.
0: No. <laughs> when I was younger, and
1: when I was in a bad mood, I'd wake up in a good mood. And if I went to bed in a good mood, I'd wake up in a bad mood. And I used yeah. to always think this was really weird. And now she's finally explained it. Jenny, I think it's a good job you don't have
0: your own podcast because I okay, can imagine how you would waste Anna Lemke's time with that observation. No, she
1: would have been like, yeah. That's right, Jenny.
0: No, she might have humoured you because she's a psychiatrist and she would have immediately identified that she was dealing with a, a dangerous lunatic. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> she would have, but do you not get that? If you, well, got you go to bed happy, and you wake up sad. Go, go to go bed and wake, up, sad, wake, up, ha- wake ha- up happy. I always think, oh, I'll wake up better. Let's ask
0: Alicia. She's a more balanced yeah. woman. Is she? Uh, oh, definitely. Alicia, do you go to bed happy and wake up sad and vice versa? I
1: go to bed happy and wake up happy.
0: I don't a always woman. make up sad. <laughs> yeah, only... If...
1: Actually, I do. <laughs> Probably. Of course you do. <laughs> well, that means I went to bed happy.
0: It's most likely because of the way you live your life and the like fact what? that you, you go to bed on a pebble beach. Look <laughs> like at Loony. All right. Uh, so, hey, listen. So, vote for those things if you want to, but please don't do it on or do do it on my account. So, and also listen to Above the Noise on Luminary. New guided meditations. They're getting better and better. You should join. You should listen to them regularly. We've
1: done a morning one. We've done a tapping one. There's a lot of great stuff. What are you saying, Jim? Uh, Yeah, the producers in America sent through the latest one and said it was, you did great. Really? Yeah, like this one's really good. What was it? Another one on restlessness.
0: That's nice, isn't it? Um, alright come and see me I'm doing a new gig in Reading on the 15th of November come and see me 6pm doing my show it's a really good show you'll love it tickets uh, there's a link uh, you can just go to my website russellbrand.com go to russellbrand.com and uh, sign up to my mailing list if you haven't already go to russellbrand.com and sign up to that and check out my various YouTube channels for free content all of the time every day of the week make it part of your regular routine okay Jen should we listen to the great Anna Lemke yes please trying
2: to achieve equality with
0: the annihilation of category is not a no, successful route that, Yes, that's,
2: that's, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss doesn't look like an ideology
0: what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told and welcome to russell brand
1: under the skin
0: thank you for joining me Uh, Anna, I'm really interested in many of the areas of your expertise and I'm excited to have this conversation.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, Your latest book, Dopamine Nation, is uh, to some degree, as I understand, about tech addiction and perhaps habitual behavior, more broadly is is my guess, because I've not seen it already yet. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the subject of your book.
2: Sure. Um, So, I mean, the premise of the book is that we are basically living in a time when everything has become drugified um, and our access to these highly rewarding substances and behaviours is nearly universal, making us all more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. I think almost everybody can relate to a minor addiction of some sort to their phones or to something they're doing online, if not, you know, a a more traditional drug. And the book essentially holds out people in recovery from addiction as modern day prophets for the rest of us um, who can provide wisdom for how to live in this dopamine overloaded world.
0: Wow. Wow well obviously um i don't know if you know but i am in recovery and yes i know yeah any route i can take to being described as a modern day prophet even if it's as (laughs) a member of a much much larger group i will accept it i've um thought for a while because recovery is one of the few areas that i'm not an expert i'm an amateur but i'm a a dedicated amateur it's one of the few areas where i feel um and um, it's my vocation where I, I feel sort of confident in speaking i the 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 way that i got clean is through 12 step abstinence based recovery and some you know and it's been 18 and a half nearly 19 wow, well, years since i've drunk or used one day at a time and i feel now that um that the addiction in a sense is a pronounced version of what would be referred to in spiritual in the spiritual lexicon as attachment and like, and there must be a hormonal component to attachment, mm-hmm. whether it's to a child or to a behavior, to a mm-hmm. snack. You know, like there is some mm-hmm. there is some biochemical component that makes mm-hmm. some external object desirable to the point where it eliminates what we might call, at least before we get too deep into the analysis, free will.
2: Oh. Absolutely. I mean, and that's essentially, you know, what the neuroscience of addiction has revealed that there's a hijacking of those brain reward pathways such that whatever the reason is that initially brought a person to using that substance or that behavior um, ultimately gets a life of its own and becomes its own, its own driver. Um, but I think you know, what's important to recognize, you know, it's, it's clear that we all come to the problem of addiction with differing vulnerabilities to the problem. Some of us are you know, innately more vulnerable than others. Our, our childhood experiences affect our vulnerability. But I think it's important to recognize the ways in which just being surrounded by highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors essentially has made all of us vulnerable. And that once we are in this addictive behavior, you don't have to necessarily be somebody who is innately vulnerable to addiction or who has trauma or emotional problems. Just repeatedly ingesting an addictive substance or engaging in addictive behavior can create this feedback loop, um, you know, modulating dopamine levels such that we lose free will in the process of, um, of this uh, compulsive overconsumption. So I think that's a really important point because I think we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, why, you know, why am I doing this behavior? You know, what is my underlying psychological problem or what is my trauma? And, you know, that's all well and good to a point, but it's, I think it's essential to recognize that there's a point at which we're doing the behavior because we're doing the behavior. The behavior itself is generating uh, repetition.
0: Yes. At what point can what? At what point is the behaviour distinct from the persona? As if there could be a discrete persona separate from the behaviour. These are sort of interwoven, interconnected, indistinct, interrelated phenomena. How do we? If the behaviour is caused by a, by a neurological activity, then it's almost petty to say, well, this bit happened in the outside world and this bit happened in the you know. By what measure? By the measure of what's inside skin and what's outside skin. That's a very um, anthropomorphic or anthropo- you know anthropocentric perspective um- now, uh, given that you are the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine and Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University, I, I would imagine that you've heard this perhaps apocryphal uh, tale about the, you know, when GIs returned from Vietnam, uh, many, the majority had opiate dependency issues due to the practice of um, you know, prescribing it to GIs. Um, And then about my understanding is is about 80 to 90 percent just went cold turkey, got rid of the habit and that the remainder were unable to. And this is often used as a marker for the people that have a sort of a, a hereditary disposition towards addiction. The difference being in the world of tech that you are never you never leave Vietnam. You continue. You remain in the battle of stimulation. So. Uh, How do you think that that Vietnam tale, if it indeed is true, Mm -hmm. uh, maps Mm -hmm. onto the uh, immersive tech addiction that we're all experiencing now?
2: Right. So, I mean, one of the biggest risk factors for becoming addicted is simple access to a drug. Mm. And the story of the Vietnam soldiers um, is a great sort of natural experiment to illustrate that so when the vietnam soldiers were in vietnam they had plenty of access to opium so it wasn't prescribed opioids it was just opium sold on the market many of them used opium many of them became addicted to opium but when they came back to the united states you know where opioids at that time were in very limited supply it was hard to get them without access most of them stopped using and their addictive behaviors just spontaneously resolved Um, Same thing with, um, you know, prohibition in this country between 1920 and 1933, it became illegal to produce, market, distribute, sell alcoholic alcohol products. And although people generally talk about that sort of decade plus time as a failure in that it generated a black market, it increased to some extent criminal activity. The truth is that when alcohol was not readily available, um, rates of alcoholic related liver disease decreased by half. Wow. Despite the, um, absence of any other advancement in medical treatment for alcoholic liver disease rates of public drunkenness decreased by half. We can presume that rates of addiction that are difficult to measure at that time also substantially decreased. So When people don't have access to their drug of choice uh, or to a drug in general, you're going to see from a population perspective, greatly reduced risks of people becoming addicted. And this is a really essential point for today and the world we live in now, because these things, um, our smartphones, are not just in and of themselves addictive, but they're a portal to all these addictive drugs, both traditional um, and new drugs like video games that didn't exist before, online pornography, online shopping, online gambling. But I think it's just really critical to understand that um, this technology has contributed to greatly increased risk of addiction for all of us. Even though those of us who innately are less vulnerable to this problem based on, you know, inherited Biological factors or developmental factors. So I do think that it has become you know, a major task of people living in the modern world to grapple with the, pro- the problems of addiction you know, on a very large public health scale, which, which was not the case, I would say, you know, a generation or two ago.
0: By virtue of, um, well, that um, access argument, sorry, that was my pen, just flew off there, <laughs> doctor. Um, by by virtue of this um, prohibition example and this access argument, are you pro-criminalization of drugs?
2: So um, I'm not like one side or another, and this is a not a black and white kind of a thing. Um, I think a lot of people um don't necessarily appreciate the difference between um decriminalizing a drug and making a drug legal so those are those are different things when we decriminalize a drug what we do is we essentially say if you are found in possession of a small amount of that drug for your own use that is not a crime if you are found in a in a possession of a very large amount of that drug which you clearly intend to say to sell to others that would be a crime. So, so that's decriminalization. Uh, legalization is something yet one step beyond that. Legalization is: um, hey, we're going to make this available in your local grocery store. You know, virtually anybody could buy it. I would say that when I look at the data for decriminalization, first of all, um, I think that. You have to look geographically because different geographic regions are going to have different needs based on their history and culture. If you look in the United States, decriminalization has probably um, been a good thing for the most part. Why is that? Because our criminal justice system is inherently racist. And by criminalizing drug possession, what ended up happening was we were um, we have been and continue to be incarcerating large numbers of brown and black people, people living in poverty. So I think decriminalization um, is, um, has, in general, been a good thing uh, or is a good thing to, to work toward. And we've made some progress in that regard in the United States. But I would say outright legalization is something different. Um, and in general, I, uh, you know I do believe that we have to put barriers between ourselves and intoxicants and that those barriers are important for limiting our use um, and on a, from a public health perspective are helpful. And we do that all the time. So for example, even legal drugs like cigarettes and alcohol, we have age limits on that. So that's a kind of a, a barrier. So I think these things are very nuanced. In general, in the United States, if you look at the data, when, when cannabis, um, let's take California as, as an example. So, um, you know, medical, medical marijuana has been available in California for decades. Um just about in the last decade, um, cannabis was also made legal, um, meaning it was legal for recreational use. So not just medicinal use, but recreational use. What happened was when cannabis in California went from being not just available for medical use, but also more broadly available, available for recreational use was almost nothing. Um, in terms of rates of use. Why is that? Because the medical marijuana market was already saturated with recreational users. The majority of individuals using using medical marijuana in California was otherwise healthy young men. So when we legalized cannabis in California, there wasn't really a big change because recreational users were already getting it. Uh, through medical marijuana dispensaries. So that's just one example of how you really have to look geographically and locally at what is already happening in that country. And then the legalization or decriminalization is a sort of um, a matter of that particular ecosystem. That makes sense. What, what are your thoughts on that, on that topic?
0: Well, you've just sort of educated me to a large degree. Uh, I felt at the beginning when you talked, um, Anna, about race, it made me feel that this is a broader point and certainly not one that I'm really particularly well qualified to address really, but it just struck me that really the laws are anti-poverty and the racism leads to disproportionate poverty among certain communities and the systemic bias against poverty at the judicial level that... Is the problem, and it made me feel like when you were talking about decriminalization, that that was a way to not further punish poor people. And when you talk about legalization, it's potentially advantages corporate institutions that are set up to sell in, in what you might regard it, once illicit or you know, those kind of substances alcohol, tobacco, The companies that have the infrastructure are likely most likely will be the beneficiaries it also i suppose leads me somewhat into the the sort of the both when dealing with tech and when dealing with addiction of drugs both prescribed and not prescribed i feel that the underlying issue is a a human emotional one that why are but like what like when i watch the social dilemma which i know you're a participant in and I learned a lot from that documentary. That When I saw that documentary, I thought, everyone's gonna be an addict now. And I thought in five years, no one will be able to use tech without a program of some kind. Uh, i.e an explicit i only use my phone at this time i'd never use my phone here i do not Mm -hmm. take my phone into these spaces i do not allow my children to you know it's not going to be something that we're just oh cool (laughs) that's (laughs) that's like it's like it's it's over i also thought you know with regard to prohibition if like if um smartphones were banned i would want one even more you know that i'm uh, like <laughs> <laughs> like that that i'm uh sort of you know like the drugs that I was addicted to were illegal drugs my i have been arrested and convicted of uh, drug charges that relate to only to personal use. I've never been able to mm. get myself together to deal drugs in any kind of meaningful way and um what I feel like is of course. The underlying problem is a sort of a, 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 at least a psychological, or potentially also a spiritual one that do like that sort of uh, that is um, commensurate with, uh, or yeah, with um, co committant with uh, despair, depression, poverty, alienation, sort of loss of purpose, mm-hmm. and. These are issues that are very difficult to even imagine being addressed within a system that sees as a necessary sees that those things as a nece- not just a necessary byproduct but in some cases a requirement for the ongoing success of the system and I know that the your previous book about um your previous book drug deal md how doctors were duped patients got hooked and why it's so hard to stop it de- deals with um like this sort of the opioid crisis in uh, your country and with the you know presumably i um, the the underlying psychological and mental health issues that underwrite addiction on on that scale what do you think about what do you think are the Psychological and sociological conditions that underwrite addiction on this scale.
2: Um, so, I agree with you that the kind of collective despair that people living in poverty experience is a huge contributor toward the development of the problem of addiction. Um, you know, my my colleagues Anne Case and Angus Deaton. At Princeton, two Princeton economists have written this wonderful book, Deaths of Despair, where they essentially talk about the opioid epidemic as arising from a problem of um, unemployment, multigenerational trauma, poverty, and that the increased prescribing of opioids in this country was sort of like the match on a tinderbox that just exploded this underlying brewing problem. So I I agree that those are huge societal problems and they explain why the problem of addiction differentially affects uh, people living in poverty, uh, people who are unemployed, um, people who have um, just a general kind of collective social despair. But in my book, Dopamine Nation, one of the main points that I'm trying to make um, is that this It is true that poverty, despair, unemployment, trauma, depression, anxiety can lead to substance use, but I think it's really essential that people appreciate even when you have none of those risk factors, you can get addicted. And I'm seeing more and more of that in my wealthy community here in Silicon Valley where I've lived for the past 30 years. Furthermore, I think it's essential for people to recognize that it is the drug use itself which can drive and create the depression and the despair, not the other way around. And and, and the reason I think that's so important is because, you know, I was taught to the limited extent that I was taught anything at all about addiction, which wasn't very much in medical school. I've had to learn from my patients and colleagues over the years but I was really taught and patients have been taught to think about their addiction as having been caused by another problem in their life. And I think to some extent that can be um, not, a fruitful, not a fruitful process because the, the, the addiction itself can, again, be the instigator for many psychiatric symptoms. Now, subjectively, when we're in our drug use, again, it doesn't matter whether it's on the smartphone or like a drug that we ingest in our bodies, it feels like when we're using our drug that we are treating the underlying psychiatric or emotional problem. But it's very possible that all we're doing is medicating withdrawal from our last dose and to understand that you really have to understand the neuroscience of addiction and what's happening in our brains when we use addictive substances so if you'd like i I can quickly kind of explain that because i think it's kind of at the heart of this and and, you know what i what i tell patients and when i teach medical students is that pain and pain and pleasure are processed in the same areas of the brain this is one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience and that they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine in your brain, there's like a little teeter-totter like in a kid's playground. And when we do something reinforcing or pleasurable, that balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. And we release dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in a part of our brain called the reward pathway. But one of the overriding rules governing this balance is that it doesn't wanna be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And it will work very hard to adapt to that stimulus to bring the balance level again. That process is called neuroadaptation. And I sort of imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, or restore what neuroscientists call homeostasis, a level balance. But the thing about this balance or these gremlins is that they like it there so they stay on until the balance is tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. So that's the after effect, the come down, the hangover. Now if we wait wait and that's essentially our brain down regulating our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission. So we go we go up in dopamine and then we come not just back down to our tonic baseline levels, we actually go below baseline levels. The pleasure pain balance tipped to the side of pain. We're in a dopamine deficit state. If we just wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and balance is restored. But if we continue to bombard our brain reward pathways with these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that release a whole lot of dopamine, we eventually end up with enough neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side of our balance to fill this whole room. Then we're walking around with a balance Tipped to the side of pain, we are in a dopamine deficit state. And that means that nothing else is enjoyable. Okay, we're very narrowly focused on our drug. When we're not using our drug, our balance is tipped to the side of pain. We're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, insomnia, depression, uh, irritability, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And now we need to keep using not to get high, but just to write the balance and feel normal. And even when we stop, it can take a really long time for those gremlins to hop off and for balance to be restored, which is why people in recovery will often relapse, even though objectively their lives are so much better, but their neurology is still a balanced tip to the side of pain. And I, this is so important because I have so many patients who come in to see me and they say, I'm, I'm depressed, you know, can you help my depression? And then I find out they're using cannabis every day or they're playing video games 24 seven. And what I say to them is, you know, you're walking around, you're essentially at war with your gremlins. You're walking around in a dopamine deficit state. The cannabis that feels like it's helping your anxiety, your sleep, your depression is actually driving it because you, you have now had to overcompensate your brain's no longer making those types of things. So essentially the first intervention often for these patients is not to give them an antidepressant or not to give them psychotherapy, but is to say, abstain from your drug of choice for a month. Let those neuroadaptation gremlins hop off, let your body start to make its own dopamine again so that homeostasis can be restored. And I have just found that with for about 80% of patients who come in depressed and anxious, simply abstaining from their drug of choice for a month will Alleviate their depression and anxiety without having to do any other intervention.
0: Wow, that was a load of brilliant information. Thank you. Um, a few things. right at the beginning, when you sort of said that we look for a kind of you know personal psychological narrative, an inception moment of when uh, addiction or addictive behavior began, uh, and that in some sense you're not sure that that's helpful. I, I, I recognise what you're saying there and I also recognise that addiction is non-discriminatory and can occur through, you know, all social classes. Um but uh the but like what I feel also is like that the the conditions for addiction are present prior to the object of addiction and perhaps that's you know something you're describing in the sort of the area when you're dealing with tech that all we needed was for something to be totally ubiquitous and all pervading to recognize that the potential for addiction is you know sort of enormous and i don't know uniform even maybe even with variation within individuals and groups even when you say that, that you know, when, and I recognise you're using recognisable and simple um, analogies for the purposes of communication, and thank you for that uh, about the sort of the dopamine seesaw, it seems to you see, seem to imply, at least those ideas seem to imply that there would potentially be a uniquely chemical solution if one could conjure a method or substance. To equalise the dopamine, achieve independent homeostasis, regardless of the behaviour or even chemical use of the patient, that the problem would be solved. What's And and, and but also you added that like a month of um, you know abstinence would be something you'd recommend, so that the body could find its own equilibrium. And in that sort of aspect of the argument, as a person that's in abstinence-based recovery, I would say that. Um, you know like our program is ongoing abstinence you know like it's not like now that i've been nearly 19 years i can start trying to drink a little beer or take drugs and there is something sort of somewhat i would say puritanical um about 12 but that, that but about 12 step recovery and other people whose opinions are respected respect like Gabon matt i say that sometimes you know 12 step recovery doesn't acknowledge enough um what do i want to say like um trauma he says in some way but when you see that, when you're saying, when we're talking about, you know, the 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 um, the assumption of homeostasis and the kind of uh, sort of the beauty that the, the, the for the system's self-restorative, you know, that tendency that the system will restore itself, I suppose what the in my advocacy for non-chemical solutions, even in terms of uh, theory and ideology, let alone because I know no such substance exists as yet. You know, is that what the spiritual pathway potentially offers is a route to the place, if place is not a reductive term, that generates and manages the relationships between those two sides of the dopamine scale. Uh, what is it in biochemistry that demands, elicits, and authors these subparticular symphonies that find amidst there the the potential chaos something as benign and necessary as homeostasis so that's sort of one thing that's sort of my advocacy for the spiritual program that's sort of uh, transcendent of materialist rationalism such as i can offer one Um, And then my next thing is, is like more like uh, my addiction, I think prior to becoming chemically dependent, I think I probably had issues with pornography as a kid. And I grew up in the 1970s. We're not dealing with tech porn addiction, just with old fashioned analog looking at porn in a way that was regarded as normal and ordinary. Mm -hmm. And then sort of, you know, sort of obsession around sex and all those kind of things and and bulimia as well, um, personally. And and then it was only when, like, and curiously enough, here's like a good anecdote, I would say, in this field, is that when I was, when I on day one in treatment for opioid dependency, when I was, like, sort of taking Subutex and stuff, day one, I ate all the biscuits in the room and made myself puke up. Like, on that day. I'd not done it since I was, like, 14 or 15, about the time that I started to become dependent on cannabis and eventually cracking heroin. Then when I'm thinking about my... Use of pornography, right? And I like broadly speaking, for my program, it's not a judgment of people that do look at pornography. But for myself, I don't find it's good for me, generally speaking, to look at porn, and, and it's normally not a problem for me. I live a quiet, domestic life, kids, chill, you know, animals, all that. But when I perform, when I go, like when I sort of, I'm a comedian, like when I perform live. I experienced such sort of heightened and in fact, may I say, frankly, incredible and beautiful states, almost sort of transcendent. And I would describe them as sort of almost shamanic, selfless, joyful sort of mm-hmm. transmissions. After that, when I come home and I'm on my own, I don't know if this is learned because of the way that I lived previously with addiction around substances and addictions around sort of sexual behaviors. But like it's sort of at that time, that is when it requires a real effort to not look at pornography. And when my mm. program requires a lot of conscious work, it, you know, when you say about interventive thoughts or interruptive thoughts or whatever mm. that was, you know, like that's like, oh my God, it just seems like that is what you're supposed to do, that there's a requirement mm. for that. Um, so too, there was two significant parts in that monologue. The first bit was about sort of spirituality <laughs> as a solution that could bypass and influence those biochemical factors that you described. And the second part of it is, is why do you think that the influence of a heightened state, even if it's naturally derived, like through performance and the sort of co, um, the accompanying adrenaline, et cetera, would elicit that kind of response in me just as one individual?
2: Yeah. Great, great. So a, a lot there to unpack. Let me uh, give it uh, my best try. First, I just want to clarify that, you know the the overriding argument in Dopamine Nation, my book, is for is essentially to embrace abstinence and embrace a new kind of asceticism, because with enough neuroplasticity, um, meaning enough ability of the brain. Uh, to heal itself with abstinence, homeostasis will be restored and people will be able to recapture um, joy in many aspects of their lives. So, um, you know, my message is not about like a reductionistic use some other drug to restore homeostasis. Although I do think that some people may have a broken balance after so much heavy drug use over so many years and, and may need other medicines to help them restore that balance Um, in terms of, you know, and also let me just say, my, my, I write a lot in my book about um, 12 steps and my theory about how, how it works. Um, And just the simple fact that it's an, it's an incredible social movement and a very um, effective treatment or intervention for those who actively participate. Which raises the whole question of spirituality, because it's very um, true that many people uh, in recovery will say that a spiritual transformation was at the heart of their recovery, um, and so it's an interesting question to think about why why would that be? What is what is going on in the brain, and I, we don't know. Um, and you know, the, the science is there there just on spirituality and the cognition of spirituality, and what's happening in the brain. Um, when people walk a spiritual pathway is, is really exciting, but also really new. But what I can tell you is that that lower brain region where, you know, we're visualizing that metaphorical pleasure pain balance. And by the way, that's one of the phylogenetically oldest parts of our brain. It's been conserved over millions of years of evolution, essentially unchanged. It's identical in humans as it is in, you know, the nematode. primitive worm. Um, So it's a very conserved, primitive part of our brain that hasn't changed. And then through evolution, we've superimposed on that part of our brain, our big, great big frontal lobes, you know, our gray matter region. And one of the things that that science has shown in recent decades is that the prefrontal cortex, which is the gray matter part of our brain right right behind our foreheads, is essential for things like delaying gratification, storytelling, future planning, considering uh, future consequences, um, and may well be involved in in the the process of having a spiritual experience. And that it's the prefrontal cortex communicating with those lower brainstem regions, including the reward uh, pathways, that keeping that communication Um, healthy and robust is essential to basically a healthy brain and a non-addicted brain. And that what happens in the process of of addiction is very likely that those prefrontal regions stop communicating with the lower uh, brainstem reward pathway. So essentially your pleasure pain balance starts to take over. You're no longer able to accurately assess impact and future consequences. Um, and you're just being driven by your, your limbic brain, by, by, your, by your reward pathway. And one of the things that happens in, in recovery and also with the spiritual transformation is that we're probably strengthening and renewing communication between the prefrontal cortex and those lower reward pathways so that we can better assess and evaluate the impact consequences, meaning of Um, you know, pleasure and pain, and and what it's doing to us and to our lives. One of the exciting developments in terms of treatment interventions in the field of addiction medicine is something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which basically applies electrical currents to the brain using um, a magnet and creating these currents. And the way in which people are looking at that intervention uh, for the treatment of addiction is to increase um, activation or wake up essentially the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe areas and kind of calm down uh, the reward pathway or lower brainstem areas. In order to bring these two back into balance, one way to think about it is that our, if you imagine the brain is a car, then our prefrontal cortex is the brakes and our reward pathway is the accelerator. Accelerator. And so addiction is some kind of dysfunction, either of the brakes or of the accelerator. Um, And so we need interventions that can bring those back into balance. Participation in Alcoholics Anonymous, another 12 steps, is one way to do that, probably by working the steps and the spiritual transformation. You enhance prefrontal um, lobe function and quiet down the limbic brain and get those two areas communicating better with each other.
0: That was cool. What about the bit (laughs) about um, the sort of heightened states from performance?
2: Ah, Yeah, so very good. Thank you. So I was. This is uh, interesting that you mentioned that because I was just talking yesterday with um, an a gold medal winning Olympic athlete who described something extremely similar um, in her experience. She would have these almost ecstatic experiences when she was getting ready to race, um, in like a essentially a a euphoric high, um, transported and and you describe something similar when you're performing. And what's happening there, I assume, is that you're essentially um, creating your own drug and you're releasing huge amounts of dopamine in your reward pathway. And if you remember, the pleasure pain balance does not want to remain very long, tipped to the side of pleasure or pain. The brain will work very hard to restore homeostasis there are good evolutionary reasons why that would be, which I'm happy to talk about, but essentially when you're in that ecstatic state, whether it's generated by performance or, you know, in this person's case, um, you know, racing in the Olympics, you have a surge of dopamine and your brain is going to correct for that by immediately downregulating your own dopamine, your own dopamine receptors. So remember the brain restores homeostasis not just by going from deviation to level, but by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That is the price that you have to pay for any pleasure. So essentially you come home and you literally have a come down just like you would from a drug that generates anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive anxious thoughts about, will I be ever, to, ever able to repeat that amazing accomplishment? You know, these kinds of negative ruminations, which come with, with these kinds of successes or peak experiences. And whenever we're in this state, naturally we crave, we crave, we don't want to be in this state. We want to get out of it. And so now, oh well, what can I do to get out of it? Right. I can do some pornography. Um, I can, you know, use another drug. We know about cross addictions, anything to get me out of this state. Of course, the secret is to tolerate it to either tolerate it until the gremlins hop off and you can naturally re- restore homeostasis or to avoid the strong deviations in the first place, to not do those things that get you, you know, so jacked up that you have the come down. Now that's not what I'm prescribing as a, as a philosophical approach to life necessarily for everybody. Um, Frankly, that kind of works for me. I like to stay right around homeostasis. I don't want to be here and I don't want to be here. And if I go here, I know there's a price to pay. Um, But for other people that that's worth the price. The trick is that they have to figure out when they have the come down how to just tolerate it um, and not then engage in other maladaptive coping behaviors.
0: Cool. Uh, This is, here are some questions. One is, um, you know, you said that you would talk about the evolutionary reasons for homeostasis. And I suppose that's sort of my guess is that that if you're in a sort of a more survival oriented condition, a degree of balance is probably sort of preferable to heighten the faculty and efficacy of the senses. So your inner life is not chaotic. Right, so all right, I understand that. And then, but it also begs the question: Why did we evolve to all right? Because it is pleasurable, and but then we just start to wonder what pleasure even is. But then, then I think, um, like when I was addicted to crack and heroin, like you know, late nineties and early two thousand, drug addicts tended to be before a whole host of wonderful, um, you know, fentanyl and opiate derived <laughs> drugs that, that are available for today's lucky drug addicts. Um, are like, um, you know, that that's uh, chemically. And uh, my understanding is, is that like crack as a sort of an amphetamine is speeding you up and heightening and then heroin is bringing you down and collapsing things and Mm. it was always my favorite drug was heroin Mm -hmm. that was the one that was the one Mm. that feels like it's Mm -hmm. ah that's that's the, the first time i ever took it i felt that is the problem mm-hmm. and and the and the you know and um, joseph campbell who i'm sure you've long since distanced yourself from were like i uh, would have been fascinated yeah. by the, oh like, i love
2: joseph campbell oh, cool cool yeah, yeah me too. Wonderful. i love all that stuff
0: um but like a lot of people think it's a bit pseudo but i really love it and um <laughs> cool thank you like well the the uh, native and self-composed myth that occurred was I am. Oh, I'm in utero. I felt like I'm. I'm home. Yeah. I'm in the right. womb. Everything right. is dealt right. with. There's nothing to worry right. about. Mm-hmm. And like just all this flurry of thoughts of like I'm just. This is it now. I'm never not doing this. I'm never mm-hmm. not doing this. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, so it's yeah. Like that. That's interesting. That it's sort of at odds with that homeostasis. I can see how that would work in conjunction with. Um, <sighs> you know, with um in conjunction, like how, like once you start messing with that scale, how you're going right. to, like, in an attempt to manage it. I mean, it's weird, though, yeah. isn't it, Anna? That ultimately you could, you know, you could pr- approach these issues from a sociological and economic and neurological, a biochemical. There are so many ways. There's not like one yeah. truth, is there? The for when it, you know, I guess, I suppose with sort of on, on one level, we're always looking for what's the most refined version. And when right. you're dealing with something as molecular as dopamine, you think, oh, right. this must be nearer now to the essence right. of the. Issue, and, and surely in some sense it must be but I believe that there is a point where these things sort of become super material in some way where it becomes difficult to read What is the impulse that says Mm -hmm. generate, you know, why must there be an equal and opposite reaction? Why? Who's doing all this stuff? What what Mm -hmm. in biochemical intelligence is at work guiding all this? Why telos? Why telos? Why Why some sort of purpose? Why survival? Why evolution? Why is there, why not just allow life to disperse and splay and spray? And who cares about the survival of (laughs) a particular set of genes? Seems like, you know, that there is some augmenting authoring mm-hmm. force mm-hmm. even with the, from the most materialistic and atheistic you know analysis yeah i
2: mean i i i agree that this kind of you know the the neuroscientific lens through which to understand this behavior and this problem i think is useful and also you know frankly it people it resonates for people Mm. but it's certainly not the only lens through which to understand these problems and many of the ideas that neuroscience is proving true today have been ideas that have existed for centuries and communicated in other forms you know whether through religious traditions or philosophical traditions what like Oh, oh you know that every every pleasure has the cost and yeah. what goes up must come down yeah. i mean these are not really new messages we just have science now to to show that to show things that we kind of always knew um so you know i i agree with you there are, there are many different lenses through which to understand um understand these processes
0: <sighs> i like what you said by the way earlier about sit with it again that's another sort of uh, a yeah. 12-step message like that like most addicts i know are like they do not want to sit and be in pain like speaking of myself i feel like pain is now do something do something right. to get rid of this you know
2: that's not just yeah that's not just people with addiction that's all people and, and i would say increasingly in our culture where we're taught that if we're uncomfortable or unhappy in some way there must be we must be doing something wrong and we need to do a behavior that will get rid of that feeling we don't really have a cultural narrative around like it's okay to be unhappy or just you know tolerate that for a while or that maybe it's even good for us to endure some suffering and um, that's not, not really the modern narrative, you know Russell I feel really bad but I, I have another thing at eight o'clock um, my time
0: is that now. That's now. Well, it's lovely speaking with you. I've really, really enjoyed
2: it. Yeah, very nice to speak to
0: you too. I I could have spoke to you for so much longer. Uh, There were bits where, I I know that, I mean, in a good interview, when I start to, I mean, and this is sort of in a sense counterintuitive, when I start thinking, oh, well, I'm just gonna talk about my actual issues now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's always great. You know, I, I always think it's an act of courage to share your own story. You've been very open with your recovery. And I think it's clear that you know you've helped a lot of people um, in doing that, especially if somebody you know has celebrity statue whose stature who's open with their recovery. Um, it, it's it helps a lot of people because people then you know realize wow this could happen to anybody. There's a kind of a shared humanity there. So I appreciate you know, your message.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. I, I'd love to do another podcast with you, please. Yeah.
2: Sure, any time. Yeah, thanks, anytime. Doctor.
0: Well, I hope the next thing goes well, and thanks again.
2: Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Anna. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag under the skin. Now, I really liked that conversation. Did you? Yeah. I'd love another she one. She should come back. Her. I'd love her back. We'll get her back. I was talked about it later in the day. I talked about the dopamine. I like that dopamine seesaw as well. Yeah. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> Come and see me on tour. Go to com. Listen to You've already downloaded this uh, app, so why don't you listen to a guided meditation now? Give yourself a little bit of time. You need a break. You need love. Don't you, Jen? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs>
0: sign up to my community at com so you can get, you know, access to me. And if you enjoyed this podcast, isn't it Gabor Matty, who I referenced? Gabor is, of course, one of the great... Bodhisattvas of our time, a beautiful, loving man. And also listen to Tristan Harris. We should get Gabble Matty's son on. He's pretty amazing, apparently. What does um, he talk about? Talks a lot about the Middle East. I Tristan guess. Harris, we should, uh, you know, you should listen to that as well, because he's also sort of a prominent, perhaps the most prominent contributor to The Social Dilemma, which Anna was also in, and she was fantastic in that. And Jenny, I can tell you're going to have to work out the levels on this podcast, because I can hear clacky fingers over there. I can hear don't, you've not...
1: Don't worry, just... Is always the levels are always muted on me. I,
0: I wish, uh, that that were true. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, keep watching YouTube, and thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin.